welcome back. We are doing a bonus episode this week. Yes, we both have kind of a little bit hard topics to talk about this week, so we decided not to bum you out and just do a little midweek episode. So, yeah. so the heaviness of today should get sort of fixed by Friday when yeah, we do give us our... a couple days and come back. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I hope you enjoy this episode and let's get into it. All righty. So what's this mystery story that you tell me that I've heard before? Yes. Well, you probably already heard it. I don't know if you would know the name. So I'm going to tell you the story of the murder of Kara Evelyn Knott. Okay. I do not know that name. Not yet. Okay. Kara was born February 11th, 1966 in San Diego, California. She's even older than me. <laughs> Yeah, so she's older than you. In 1986, at the age of 20, she was attending San Diego State University. She, at the time, I believe, was living at home with her parents still, but she had a boyfriend in the next, not the next town, but about 30 minutes north in Escondido, California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So on December 27th, 1986, she left her boyfriend's house in Escondido, California to drive back to her parents who lived in El Cajon. And like I told you, that was about a 30-minute drive. I think they said it was about 30 miles. So depending on what time of day, I'm sure it could be up to an hour drive. Okay. Traffic is never easy there, I think. However, once over an hour had passed and she never arrived, her family became suspicious and a little bit alarmed. And of course, it's 1986, so they didn't have a cell phone to contact her. They were just kind of like... All right, we're a little concerned here. So they contacted her boyfriend and he confirmed she did in fact leave over an hour ago. So he didn't know where she was either. They ended up calling the police that night. The police kind of gave them the general response of she's an adult. You can't give us 24 hours before she's missing. So they said F that and they decided to begin a search completely on their own. Okay. So on December 28th, the next morning, Kara's brother-in-law found Kara's car, which was a VW Beetle, so it was a very distinct car, like you would recognize it, and he found it on an off-ramp that was not finished, so it was like under construction. Oh wow, it was hidden there. It was hidden there, but if you had gotten off onto it, it seemed like you wouldn't know unless you were from the area that it wasn't finished, so it kind of led to a dead end. Oh, it wasn't marked? It was marked as Mercy Road, but it was under construction at the time, so once you got off the off-ramp, it would go past some trees... And then you would think there would be a. You would think maybe it was just for the weekend or something like that. I don't know. Okay. That's what they said. It was got off on an off ramp, and so they don't really know why she's there yet. Okay. But it was at a dead end. So it was right off of Interstate 15, which is the exact highway she would take from her boyfriend's house up north to the northeast side of San Diego where her parents lived. Okay. So investigators began digging in to see why her car was here, and they couldn't figure out where Kara had gone until they looked down into the ravine that was nearby off of a bridge that had been deserted, and Mm. 65 feet down they saw her body. Oh, damn. So, two days after Kara was found, KCST, which is the local news station there, they decided to do, a lot of people in the town were freaking out, like, oh my god, this girl just traveling by herself has now been found dead. And a lot of females were not willing to go out and drive by themselves, or were scared to. So, in order to kind of calm down the public panic, they decided to do a ride-along with the California Highway Patrol. And in it, they interviewed one of the patrolmen who gave tips and advice for how to stay safe as a solo female driver. After this segment aired, about a day after that, so this is three days after Kara was found, two dozen phone calls poured in from other women who had also been pulled over in almost the exact same location in the past couple of months. So they started all just frantically calling the San Diego police, and all of them stated the man that had been interviewed, the highway patrolman, was the exact person who had pulled them over in that exact spot. 
So the guy that was on the the Be Safe video was yes, the, the guy, guy literally giving instructions how, as a female, you can be safe traveling alone at don't night. Don't stop for me. Yeah, exactly. So the women all pointed their finger at him, and a lot of them claimed that he was nice enough, but creepy, and they just had an off feeling about him. Something about him was weird, and he'd never been violent with them, but they just got the ick feeling after leaving. And a lot of them had kept it to themselves because they were like, oh, maybe I'm just being paranoid. He was nice. Like, he didn't do anything. But afterwards, they saw him and said, this girl's gone missing. Something's off. I knew it. Yeah. And it was in the exact same spot they got pulled In the exact same spot, yeah. He had done in these traffic stops that women were reporting creepy things such as he had kept them detained in that abandoned spot for over an hour and began asking them personal questions about their dating life, about who they were going home to, why they were all alone at night and stuff like that. And others who actually, he had gently stroked their hair and shoulders and they actually- Well, that's just freaking creepy. It's creepy. He has no reason to be touching you. Absolutely not. They actually, one of the girls was a teenage girl. I think she said, they said she was like 19, but she had kind of decided that I don't want to report it. Like he didn't technically do anything. It just creeped me out. I didn't like that he touched me. So she went home that night and told her mom and her mom, who has lived enough time on this earth to know that's not okay. So the mom goes ahead and reports to the San Diego County Sheriff's Office that this had happened in the officer's name and everything. And they actually, because this officer had worked for the San Diego Sheriff's Office for 13 years and had nothing on his record so far, they just dismissed it and never even reported that. This was all leading up to Kara's disappearance and murder. That officer was later identified as 38-year-old Craig Payer. So as the police looked further into the case, they discovered that Kara had last been seen alive at a Chevron gas station, which was two miles north of where she was found. She was driving her VW Beetle, and the attendant had seen her leaving the gas station and pulling out onto the main road, and then saw a California Highway Patrol car that was marked and on duty make a U-turn and directly follow her after seeing her pump her gas and then leave. And that was the last time she was ever seen alive. They looked further into Craig Payer after all these reports that he'd been creepy with other women, and they found a bunch of log nights because he was, in fact, on duty that night. They looked into the logs of all the people he'd given tickets to, and he had record of, at the time Kara had gone missing, he'd given people tickets in different locations around San Diego, so he was nowhere near this. But they ended up contacting the people who he'd given tickets to, and they confirmed, yeah, I got a ticket that night, but he gave me a ticket at 1 in the morning, whereas he wrote down the book 11 o'clock at night okay. and stuff like that. So he kind of had gone back and faked a lot of the reports oh, yeah. to make it look like he it's was It's nice not. when you can cover your own tracks. Yeah, and nobody wants to hold you responsible. Payer also, in the interview that he did on women's safety for the local news station, he had scratch marks fingernail marks literally down his neck and his face wow and this was only two days after Kara had gone missing and found murder and nobody asked him about this and they did they asked him about it the police he worked with asked him about it and he said that he had fallen into a barbed wire fence Hmm. it's just it's funny how there were four or five barbs on each cheek yeah what we believe to have happened as police like put it all together and eventually arrested him for this After following her that day after the Chevron incident, Craig Payer had pulled her over onto the unfinished off-ramp. He attempted to chat her up, and and she ended up calling him out on being inappropriate and saying, I'm going to report you if you continue this behavior, as she freaking should. Yeah. And this had him angry and scared that he was going to be actually held responsible for what he'd been doing for months and months. Wow. Poor him. Yeah. Gosh, I, I really feel for him. 
I know. So he then became physical as he tried to grab her. She then dug into his face with her fingernails to fight him off. And he then bludgeoned her with his flashlight. She had a bunch in the autopsy, a bunch of bludgeon marks on her head. And then strangled her with a rope that he'd conveniently had in his backseat of his patrol car. Mm. Mm-hmm. Throwing her over a bridge into the ravine nearby. They, with the evidence they had, they did find the rope in the back of his patrol car, and this made me question and kind of giggle a little bit reading about it. They had a forensic dentist determine that the rope in the back of his car matched the indentations around Carrot's neck. Why was a dentist being put in charge of I can't even begin. Maybe that was the only forensics expert they had. at the time? Well, I mean, just think about it. In 1986, the forensics were not what they are now. They didn't have all these different specialties. And I get that forensic dentist is a very real career. We need that to match dental records when people are found. But I just, whatever, that's what they said in all the articles. Yeah, that is, it, it does sound really strange, though. But, you know, if the rope matches, it matches. And then they also found some gold fibers on her dress, which matched a patch that Craig had had on his patrol uniform that night. One of those ropes that goes around your shoulder. Yeah. All in all, Craig Pear was found guilty of murder on August 4th, 1988, and he was sentenced to 25 years to life. Wow. And to this day, he still claims his innocence. He's still alive. Of course he does. Yeah, he still claims his innocence. They also found a blood drop on the boot of his uniform that later matched the same blood type as Kara. There was some physical evidence, just not that could really be tested to the extent today it can be. Right. But it's pretty damning to me, if you ask. (laughs) Well, it sounds like... On top of all the other circumstantial, like, oh, you lied about all of these reports of who you pulled over and when and where. That's right. If you're falsifying Mm -hmm. traffic stop times so that you can cover... And, like, 20-plus women are coming Create an alibi. Are saying that you have done this exact thing to them? No. Yeah, and they were just... They were just too uh, intimidated mm-hmm. to say, look, what you're and doing is not cool. It's that thing where, as a woman, there's so many times you get a weird feeling about a person, a guy specifically, and you're just like, oh, I'm being dramatic. I watch too much true crime. I'm like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And so they just go home and talk to themselves. Oh, he didn't do anything to me, technically. So, well, and for a long, long, long time, even if he had you raped didn't, them or something. Even if you didn't think you were being overly dramatic, mm-hmm. nobody cared. Nobody was going to make any issue of it. They were going to tell you, you know, nothing happened, so get over it. And the people that did go forward and report even before any of this happened, they were just let go and said, oh, he's an officer. He wouldn't do that. I think we've established that any profession can be a bad person. Yes. I wrote here, don't feel too bad, though. Because in 2004, a group that had been put together by the San Diego County Sheriff's Office to possibly exonerate wrongfully convicted prisoners decided to help him out because there was no physical evidence after all other than the blood blood drop the one blood drop being found on his shoe they simply they said we'll do all of this for free we're not going to charge you lawyer fees or anything like that they simply asked him for a dna sample that was now more readily available to test and more specific now in 2004 Mm -hmm. so they simply asked him for a dna sample and he refused he also refused to give any kind of explanation as to why but maintained that he was innocent okay so california has not gone back to all of its convicted murderers and made them all give dna i don't know i don't know that's a good question because there was a story i was looking at that i haven't 
done a narrative yet for. Mm -hmm. And that guy was caught because Nevada went back later and forced all of their prisoners to give DNA. And that was how they caught this guy, and he turned out to be a serial killer. So I'm really surprised that California hasn't done that. I think maybe because this is a private group coming in to do their own research, maybe... So you don't think they have access to the... system has the DNA. I think maybe... They just haven't backdated and tested it again. Mm. But who knows? Maybe they have, and it's just not readily available. I don't know. Yeah, they may not have access to the database. But this group specifically, he refused to give them any DNA to hopefully exonerate him mm-hmm. if he was innocent. Because he wasn't going to be exonerated. Well, and also, he was probably going to be connected to other... Yeah, that's what I said in there. I put in parentheses, uh, possibly because he didn't want any more rapes slash attacks to be linked to him. Yeah. Because... Probably. (laughs) Well, a guy like that, you cannot assume that he has not been... He might have not murdered before, but he's done something bad to women before. You don't do this to tens of hundreds. Who knows? Women. As as calm and cool as he was after it happened, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if he had done it before. Yeah, exactly. Because the next freaking day he was on TV telling people how not to let that happen to them. Yeah, in that night he literally went home to his wife. And just said, oh, I'm just tired, and went to bed, and then went back to work the next day. What the fuck? I'm kind of tired. Killed a girl today. Oh, these scratches, I fell into a barbed wire fence. It's fine. You don't have to worry about that. I hate that. You know, it's a real risk in my job. Happens a lot. I fall into barbed wire fence. (laughs) To make you feel better, his parole has been denied several times and is not eligible again until 2027. And he is serving at California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo, California. Mm Mm-hmm. In... This is sad. In 2000, while visiting the Kara Knott Memorial Oak Garden, which is where Kara's body was found, her family came together and made a memorial garden because she really liked plants and trees and flowers. She was known for drawing flowers a lot. She was just into that. So her father actually went to visit it again in 2000, and he ended up suffering a heart attack and passed away literally three yards from where her body was found. Oh my gosh. Isn't that horrific? Like, ugh. I can't imagine the stress that that puts on a parent. A lot of people said that's exactly what killed him is because all those years. So after her murder, many women were afraid to pull over when driving alone, even for police, especially for police after this happened. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to put it out there. If you ever are in a situation where you feel like you are not safe to pull over or you would prefer to get to a more populated or better lit area, that is absolutely in your right. So I did look it up. It is absolutely within your right to call 911 and ask them, first of all, is this a verified police officer making a stop? Because they are required to alert their dispatch center when they are making a stop. Also, if you tell the 911 operator that you do not feel safe and that you are still willing to pull over, you're not evading arrest, you are just simply trying to get to an area that is safe to you, that is perfectly fine. Please do so. Absolutely. Those are the people that can help you. If you are legit fearing for your safety, that is what 911 is for. You're not going to get in trouble if you simply explain the situation and say, I feel unsafe, I just want to on record that this person is pulling me over and I want to know who they are, I want to know their badge number, all that stuff. And you don't even know what jurisdiction they're coming from. You don't know mm-hmm. if they're state police or county or Especially local. if it's an unmarked car, which they are mm-hmm. out there that are legit unmarked police cars. I would never pull over for an unmarked car Absolutely. without calling and verifying that they are somebody that is actually has the right to pull me and over. They and they have those little lights you can buy on Amazon. They're like magnetic that you stick to yeah. your hood for like 25 bucks. Well, you can buy a police uniform. Mm-hmm. I mean... 
it's not hard to look nope. exactly like a police officer. So and even yeah, like I, the badges and stuff. I personally, do you know what a real police badge looks like? Would you know what to look I for think, in a fake? I wouldn't. <laughs> I think everywhere you go, they're gonna look a little bit different. Yeah, it's like a driver's license. If I go to Texas, I'm gonna have no idea what a legit driver's license looks like versus a fake. That's why when you go to buy box wine, it, they, they always go, "Is this real?" And I'm just like, <laughs> "Yeah, it is." Unfortunately, I was born that year. <laughs> I'm yeah. so old. I'm under 30 and I'm so old. Oh my gosh, thank you for asking. But yeah. I'm, I'm... <laughs> well, the problem is that in Georgia, they have to ask you regardless. I, I mean, I get carded when I go mm-hmm. places, which is just ridiculous. All it takes is one undercover police officer who's like, you didn't check. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I did not know that story, but the poor family, and for the rest of their lives, mm-hmm. you know they're looking with suspicion at every... law enforcement person they ever see and it's not to say that i think all police are bad like i have of course not my stepbrother is a cop i think that majority of policemen are good but you just there's a bad egg every once in a while and if you feel unsafe no matter what their freaking background or whatever is you have the right to pull over and get to a place where you are not going to be attacked i think that there is an aspect to predators who really like the idea that people will defer to them and that people will do anything they tell them they are supposed to do. And so there are people who are drawn into law enforcement mm-hmm. who are their predatory from the very beginning. They're just power hungry. And That's right. They just want the power of knowing that people are going to do what they say. Mm-hmm. And 99% of them are not that guy. Yeah. But, but there, there are yeah. like that. <gasps> wow. Well, well, that was an interesting story. All right, are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me. <laughs> In 2008, Reshma James had fled California to escape her abusive husband of less than a year. The husband, Joseph Poliparoth, had followed her all the way across the U.S. to her new home in New Jersey. He accosted her at her church two days before Thanksgiving in 2008, and when she refused to leave with him, Joseph shot Reshma in the head. Mm. Dennis Malusaro, a church official who was entirely uninvolved in the situation, tried to help Reshma. Joseph went on to shoot Reshma's cousin, after which he also shot Dennis. Mm -hmm. Reshma died instantly. The cousin, fortunately, survived in the end. But Dennis Malusaro passed away in the hospital the next day. It was one day before he would have turned 26. Three months later, in February 2009, the same church held a different kind of service. This service was to celebrate the five lives that continue only because of a decision made by Dennis's parents. John Muscarella was breathing through Dennis's lungs. Terence Begley had received Dennis's pancreas and one of his kidneys. Migdalia Torres received the other kidney. Malta Hamed was alive because Dennis's liver was now inside of her body, ending her long battle with liver disease. And James O'Hay wore a shirt with Dennis's photo on it behind which was the strong thumping of Dennis's beating heart. Dennis's mother held her ear to James's chest, listening to the sound of part of her son still alive inside of this stranger. In the end, five lives from different locations, different backgrounds, races, and ethnicities were saved, reframing the terrible tragedy of Reshima and Dennis. Scott Moran of Indianapolis had a huge personality and a warm smile and he was always there to help when somebody needed him. He was 24 years old in 2009, when one day he walked from the house out into his family's garage and was shot in the neck by a shooter who then fled. What the fuck? Scott's mother was the first to reach him, 
and using her training as a critical care nurse, she managed to keep him alive until paramedics arrived to take him to the hospital. But after several days of life support in the hospital, he was declared brain dead. His mother knew that allowing others to receive his organs would, in a sense, keep her son alive. Mm -hmm. In the end, because he had lost so much blood, only one of his lungs was suitable for transplantation. But that one lung saved the life of a man in Michigan, a man the same age as Scott's mother, a man who sent her a letter telling her of all the things that her son's lung had allowed him to do, the time with his grandchildren that he had been given, Mm -hmm. a middle-aged man who owed his life to a young man taken too soon from the world. Stuart Rexter, who had the nickname of Chico, was a kind, generous soul who chose to see the good in other people, and he made friends with everyone, even when they didn't live up to that. Stuart of Airdrie, Scotland, had previously worked with a man named Scott Agnew. Agnew was out on parole for previous crimes, and for some reason, Stuart had owed him a 400-pound debt for four or five months. Apparently, Agnew lost his patience and chased Stuart down the street, punched him, and then stabbed Stuart in the head with a screwdriver. Over 400 pounds. Over 400 pounds. All of this was caught on video from a neighbor's camera. Two days later, 38-year-old Stuart died in the hospital. His family was then told that he had chosen to sign up as an organ donor. They took this as a ray of hope, knowing that he would live on in the lives and memories of others. Stuart's father, Dennis, said, So we went from the depths of being told he was dead to seeing that there could be a positive outcome to his life. It was just like we were getting a light. He could save somebody else's life. He'd just lost his own life, but he's going to save somebody else's. It's just such an uplifting feeling. Scotland, by the way, has the highest percentage of organ donors in the UK. Mm-hmm. Justin Schilling was 17 years old, attending Oxford High School in Michigan. He was described as outgoing, thoughtful, polite, a star student, patient and present in the moment. People talked about how much love he showed for his family and friends. In December 2021, he was one of the four students who were murdered in the Oxford High School mass shooting, along with Hannah St. Juliana, Tate Meyer, and Madison Baldwin. When Justin was taken to the hospital, and ultimately it was determined that he was not going to survive his injuries, his family decided to allow his organs to be donated. When it came time for the surgery to donate his organs, the Oxford community came together. Justin's family would be traveling on foot from one part of the hospital to another across an elevated pedestrian bridge that went over a road. Mm -hmm. Before the family crossed over the bridge, hundreds and hundreds of people, including friends, schoolmates, neighbors, teachers, first responders, and hospital staff, gathered below the walkway holding signs showing their love and being present for the family. Mm -hmm. Because of the Schilling family's unselfish decision, Justin's kidney, liver, and both lungs went to separate recipients, saving the lives of four different people. Because he so loved golf, at his funeral, the mourners were offered golf balls printed with the words, Justin Schilling, be a hero, give the gift of life. Brandon Long was a 30-year-old who worked as a roofer. He was a loving father, a good son, and just an all-around nice guy. His family said he was kind and generous and friendly and loving. Brandon was loved by everyone who knew him. Without any reason, Brandon was shot in Washington, D.C. in April 2021, and his murderer is still being sought. In the agony of their loss, his family discovered that he was on the registry to be an organ donor, and they felt it would be especially appropriate under such tragic circumstance. So they allowed his organs to be donated. His heart, liver, kidneys, and pancreas were transplanted to others, 
and ultimately Brandon saved five lives. Shamika Rogers was a 21-year-old finishing her college studies to become a teacher when she was murdered. She was living in Lansing, Michigan, and when she died, her family decided to donate her organs. Her liver was transplanted into Dr. Michael Hagen, who was one week away from death from liver failure. He had contracted hepatitis B through treating emergency room patients during his medical career. He had been forced to leave the work he loved because he couldn't risk passing the disease on to patients, and his liver had shrunk from the normal four pounds down to four ounces. Shamika saved his life. Absolutely. Dr. Hagen had not actually been given the name of his donor, as that's kept confidential until both parties agree to share their identities. Mm -hmm. But he researched with what information he did have, and he found out when the trial was for Shamika's murderers. He attended every single day. On the last day, when the killers were sentenced, he handed the prosecutor a letter to give to Shamika's family, expressing who he was, why he was there, and offering them the option to either meet him or not. Mm-hmm. He was ready to leave if that was their choice, but yeah. they read the letter and they came running down the hall, overjoyed to meet the man who carried a living part of their beloved family member inside of him. The experience was so powerful that Dr. Hagen joined the staff of Gift of Life Michigan, working tirelessly to expand the donor registry. His work has increased the numbers of people who are able to receive the life-saving organs that they can only get after a heartbreaking loss to some other family. But Shamika's family has maintained a friendship with Dr. Hagen, and they feel peace knowing that without the gift of life they gave him, he couldn't have accomplished all that he has in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Their sacrifice has saved countless others through the larger donor registry that Hagen was responsible for. It's really not all that common for murder victims to have their organs donated because, as in the case of Scott Morin, the organs don't always maintain the optimal level of blood and oxygen that's required to keep them in the healthiest possible condition. Yeah. That's why he could only donate a single lung. Once someone has been terribly injured, blood loss or direct trauma can reduce or eliminate the viability of these critical organs. That's why it's such a beautiful thing that some families have been able to find the peace and the gratification of knowing their loved one literally saved other people after the cruel theft of their own lives and in fact that a part of them is still alive too. I know how heavy this story is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been practically <laughs> weeping through the whole, the whole thing, but because the murders of these good people are so heartbreaking, it's just really hard to, to hear about them. But these are the stories of how people who didn't know one another, who never set foot in the same room, saved the lives of 15 other people that they never met. The senseless losses of Dennis, Scott, Stuart, Justin, Brandon, and Shamika were devastating to their families and their friends, but they have been able to find a place of peace in knowing that their loss had saved other families from experiencing the same kind of grief. So I kind of pulled a Bailey today. Is... You're not allowed to do the happy stories anymore because I'm over I here know, sobbing. I know it is. It's such a heavy story, but it's yeah. just, I mean, in the end, these people were murdered, but mm -hmm. their families, they found peace from that. I really liked that quote you gave. I think it was the second story of the father who was saying, basically, we went from, well, he's dead, we're never going to see him again, to, right. oh, wait, he gets to live on a little bit. That's right. So that's the way you have to think about it. It's super freaking sad. Don't and, get me wrong. but And for Dennis's mother to put her head up against a stranger's chest and hear her son's heart beating. Mm -hmm. so. And just know that they're not going to be forgotten. Everyone in those recipients' 
families, those people will always have warm thoughts. They may not know the name of the donor, but they'll always mm -hmm. have gratitude. So, oh, but not every good story is an easy story. And it is. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I love that people are starting to go out there and put themselves on the registry. Back in the day, people were hesitant to do it. A lot of people, when I've searched this before in the past, have said, oh, well, they're not going to treat me in the hospital if I get really sick. They're just going to take me off lation or whatever so that they can take my organs. Well, if you're dying from an illness, it's less likely that they're going to be able to use your organs. Well, that, and they're not, they're going to give you the utmost care until you're literally brain dead. And if they're, if you are not coming back, that's when they remove your organs. Yeah. They're not going to go to a person who has a chance of recovery and just unplug them and give their organs away. That's not how that works. I think I've been on the donor registry for probably since I started driving. Yeah, I think I've that been you on start there since I was 15. I, yeah. And I'm also on the Be the Match registry for bone marrow. I am too. And that's a good 15. one too because that can help a lot of people who have health concerns that cannot be fixed other than stem cells. Be the match is really important because you don't have to be dead for that. Well, there, there's two things. It used to be that be, be the match was for bone marrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they would do the core from your hip bone to mm -hmm. get the marrow. But I think the majority of the stem cells they get now, they get from plasma. Really? I've I do not believe anymore that it has to come from the bone. Alone. You might be right. Okay, so... We looked it up just to make sure yeah, we weren't <laughs> telling lies about this. So there are two methods of stem cell donation, which mm -hmm. is bone marrow, which is the one where they do the core from your bone. And, and then, then the other one was... Peripheral blood stem cells? Right. So. And they do that through a, a process of apheresis, and I think it's very much like when you donate plasma. Yeah. So, so it's like a blood donation, so basically. It's not invasive, really. It's you, not surgical. Yeah. So it's it, like giving blood. Yeah. And... If you could save somebody's life by giving blood, mm -hmm. well, you can save somebody's life by giving blood. Give all your body parts, y'all. You don't need them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you, you need some of them. And it, if you are eligible, obviously donate your blood, too. That takes even less time, so it's literally the bare minimum you can do if you can. Yeah, and that saves people's lives, too. Mm -hmm. All right. Donate blood. Get on the Be, Be the, the match. match Marrow Registry. And please when you sign go up. to the DMV, please, all it takes is you have to do a little tiny check mark, and then if you ever in a car accident, anything happens to you, just know it will give your family a little bit of closure. And you will save and lives. And save people it's, as a final act. Of course, that's easy for me to say. I'm not the one who passes out when I get blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, back when I, how old was I? Maybe 16, 17? Yeah. Because we used to go as soon as we were up like everything so five again. weeks or whatever it was yeah whatever we were eligible to donate again we'd make a whole day of it and go get lunch together at Panera and then go to the blood bank nearby mom and I went and gave and I <laughs> I think maybe my third time giving at this point and we went and you know how they give you cookies and stuff like that to get your blood sugar back up and everything well mom and I are sitting there and I slowly apparently I was like sitting upright fine and having a conversation with her and I slowly just started sinking into my chair. You're like and, sliding out of the chair. And did I say anything? I, I feel like I wanted to say something. I just didn't. I think you were just kind of drooling and sliding. <laughs> <laughs> and so I slowly kind of slithered like a little snake to the ground as mom caught me. I'm like, hey, hey, help. And I remember that's where I went black. I don't remember a damn thing after that. But then when I woke up, you were standing next to me and I was lying on a stretcher. And... I remember I woke up and I was so embarrassed. And mom, keep in mind, 
mother took a picture of me in a half dazed. I, I still that. had drool, and they had a bib on me at this point because I've been drooling. <laughs> and so mom posted a picture of me in this state onto Facebook, which I still have. <laughs> Maybe I'll post that picture. That was mean. <laughs> no, but it's hilarious now, ten years later. But <laughs> not only did I pass out in front of all these cool nurses and stuff i also had to go online after the fact and find picture of me i'm okay guys but yeah and then i remember i made a comment to the nurse saying i just feel bad that i made all of you guys worry and she's like oh honey we weren't worried you're fine (laughs) (laughs) and it was all worth it because they gave us some cute little red cross soup bowls is that where we got those from yeah we still use them for dippers and for m&ms so they felt so bad that i no that was they were going to give us those bowls either way Oh, all right. Well, I'll choose to believe. I think they could have given us an extra bowl for making you pass out. <laughs> you know, it was fun. It was fun. So, I think that's all we got today. Yeah. We hope that we have not made you guys weep in your car today. Or, you know, a good cry here and there is good for the soul. It so is good for the soul. Get it out. Get it out. <laughs> all right. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Reach out to us at True Crime BNB on Instagram. We'll post pictures that go along with our stories every week. So go ahead and check that out before you listen. Mm-hmm. And see you next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. <coughs> All right, Mom. I think we need a purr break for a second. I think you're right. Maybe we need to, like, not do this story. Do you want to take a snot break real fast? (sighs) I told you to bring Kleenex with you. This is going to be the hardest edit we've ever done. People are going to hate me after this episode. (laughs) Feel better. (laughs) We're weeping. We're fucking weeping. Oh, my 